Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. I am your coach and your host, Cody Boom Boom McBroom, here to help you understand the science inside of training and nutrition. I am here to educate you and deliver that evidence-based training and nutrition information in a practical and applicable way. If you are new to this podcast, do me two quick favors. The first one being hit the subscribe button. We drop three episodes per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, completely free, here to help you grow as an individual and in the gym and in the kitchen. Number two, scroll down into the show notes of this episode and check out our top four ranked episodes. If you enjoy this podcast, I know you will enjoy the others, and I want you to download the most downloaded and favorite episodes by the listeners. Today, we have the nutrition Q&A. Last week, we did the training Q&A where I went into the, I guess you could call it the question vault, the question archive, where I get all my questions from, which is kind of a a combination of things, which I should probably bring up right now since I'm talking about it. If you have questions for me, there's a couple places that they are most likely going to be uh, picked from first. Um, They're going to be seen first. The first one being my email. I'm on my email every single day. It's what I do for a living. Go over to boomboomperformance.com slash podcast. There is a form that you can actually fill out to ask me anything. Put your name, your email, and your question. You will not go into a list and get spammed, I promise. It is solely because if your question doesn't make sense, if it is too in-depth, if it needs more individualized attention, so on and so forth, I might just respond to you and have a conversation with you to try to help you instead of bringing it up on the podcast first. The other place is Instagram. So if you're listening to this and you're not following me, which I would really be surprised because most of the people listening to this find me from Instagram first. But if you're not, head over to Instagram at Cody.BoomBoom. It's linked in the show notes of this episode. Um, Shoot me a DM. I literally answer all my DMs personally. I never let one go unless it's spam or if it's that, uh, is it BeFit Apparel? There's going to be a lot of coaches laughing when they hear this, but there's that one apparel company that has like 20 different accounts that always tries to comment and DM you. God, that shit is annoying. Anyway, I blocked the shit out of them. (laughs) But... Shoot me a DM. I will answer you if you are not a robot, if you are not spam, if you are not trying to sell me something crazy. I will respond to you no matter what. I'll probably answer your question in depth and then maybe bring it on the podcast as well. But if you want it heard on the podcast, shoot me a DM and literally ask me, hey, I got a question for the podcast. That really does help me a lot. Um, know which ones go for here. And then the last place is going to be the Facebook group. So if you've ever purchased an ebook of ours, you get access to the Facebook group. Um, so if you're not in the Facebook group, head over, grab an ebook. They are killer. They're going to help you get great results in the gym. Most of them are training programs. We do have the recipe guide. We do have the performance nutrition manual. All of those come with access to the private forum. Once you are in the private forum, it's free reigns to post anything as long as it's not crude or offensive to anybody specifically. Um, I got to put some kind of boundaries in there. But in that place, I always ask them first and foremost, yo, team, we're doing a Q&A. What are your questions? And I'll pick the best ones from there. Um, and it's also a good place to just randomly post and tag me and ask me questions. But anyway, those three places are where you go for the questions. This week, I pulled nutrition-specific questions from those three places, and I decided to do a nutrition Q&A. So that's what we got on the table today. Um, Yeah, let's get right into the podcast. I always think it's funny when I record Q&As because I, (laughs) I do the intro, and then I hit stop because I know we're gonna hit that little noise and then I just start recording again and part of me is like why don't I just keep fucking going and then I can just get right into the questions Um, but I actually think we are going to do something professional 
So a um, little uh, side tangent before we get into the questions. I know I said let's get into it, but I have a side tangent for you guys. Um, I would really, really, really appreciate it if you stopped right now or you did it afterwards or you did it later or you don't do it at all if you've already done it before. But um, Or if you have multiple iTunes accounts or multiple emails you can use, do it anyway. Do it twice. Do it three times. Do it four times. Um, okay, I'm being obnoxious now, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I would really, really appreciate a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Uh, it, it really does mean the world to me to see people from around the world listening to my podcast and taking the time to leave a note. Um, the fact that they could stop what they're doing, go out of their way and actually leave me a comment to say like, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing. I love the content. It's helping me in some way. Like that means the world to me. It just shows me that what we're doing is actually having a positive effect. And that's why we do this. Like it really is is solely about giving back and it's about educating people in a space that doesn't have enough education focus. And like, I, I can't like stress how important it is to me to be a light in this industry to like be someone that does that. Um, and, and the reviews are one way that really helps me see that. But on top of that, your boy made it into the top podcast. So funny little thing, you know, I have been chasing this number for a long time, right? There's the categories in iTunes and you can go to health and fitness and then there's all these categories, right? There is like alternative health, um, fitness, nutrition, sexualities on there for some reason, uh, health something, mental health. There's like all these different ones, right? Um, and I always look at these and I'm always kind of thinking like, man, like what does it take to be in that top 50? Like how am I not in there? I've been doing this for a while. I'm so like adamant about it. And then I see like some buddies that own podcasts and I'm like, fuck, they're in there. What the hell, right? Little do I know, I never categorized my podcast properly. So this whole time I've been doing a podcast, I am in no category, literally. Uh, probably not the best thing uh, if you want to get ranked on iTunes. So I finally did that, um, and boom, I'm in the top 50, and it was really exciting. Now, it, it bounces around quite a bit, so I was in the top 25 one week, top 35 the next week, but I've been consistently in the top 50 ever since I did that really recently. Um, and one of the reasons that I believe, and I'll be completely transparent with you guys, I don't know shit about the algorithm inside of iTunes. I don't know... I assume that ranking is by downloads and or reviews. That's my guess. It would make sense that way. Um, and because of that, uh, I assume if you're leaving a review, you must have downloaded it at least once. So what I'm saying here is I would really appreciate it if you guys can help me continue to go to the top of that list. It is, it is just a personal goal of mine. It's something I've been striving to do is just be a light in this podcast space and I really, really got fired up when I saw that there. And it's because of you guys. You guys are taking in this information. You're applying it. So you're getting results. And therefore, you come back and listen for more, which is what it's all about. So if you do appreciate this podcast, if you do enjoy listening to me talk and rant and uh, constantly rabble on your speakers or your headphones, I would really appreciate it if you ran over to iTunes and left me a five-star rating and review. Um, leave me something I can read and get excited about, get fired up about, be honest with me. Tell me how this is helping you so I can continue to do whatever is helping you. Um, and yeah, I want to I keep climbing up that chart because it just means more and more people get to listen. And if more and more people get to listen, then more and more people get to achieve results, essentially. Um, and then last but not least, part of me seeing that made me realize, like, I think we need to get a little more professional with the intro. As you probably notice, I never... It's never like a pre-recorded thing. Like it's it's literally always like on the spot. Like I just did an interview, so I'm gonna get off the call with whoever my guest is, and I'm just gonna 
crush a intro real quick. And when I do Q and A's, I just jump on. I, I typically say the same thing every time I start my intro. Um, but I don't like pre-record that. So I think we're going to, I think we're going to switch up the beat a little bit. I think we're going to splice in a recording of me doing like a very professional and specific intro that we can reuse, um, that kind of describes what the podcast is about. Um, part of me likes the organic feel of me just jumping on saying shit, but then the other part of me realizes, you know, there are new listeners all the time coming on and the fact that I don't have a consistent and congruent intro, it's just kind of me just jumping on and saying, yo, this is the coaching podcast makes me realize that, you know, I need, I need somebody to come on and do it for me or I need to do it myself. And, and I'm pretty picky with voices. So unless anybody listening to this knows Morgan Freeman personally and can get me his email address um, or the email address of his agent, I would love that because then I would have him introduce me on the podcast. I mean, that would be sick. I think he has the best introductory commercial style epic storytelling voice I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, and he's like 150 years old. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that as in he has been crushing it. Same with Samuel L. Jackson. Those guys have been crushing it for so damn long. And ever since I was born, I don't feel like either one of them have aged a day. They got to be healthy as oxes. Um, but my point being is they're still crushing it. But, and you know what, if anybody knows Samuel L., I'll, I'll I'll gladly have him do the intro as well. They both have pretty epic voices, except I think Samuel might scare some people away. Uh, but anyway, that long-winded uh, discussion was just to say, like, we are going to switch up the intro, so be ready for that. Um, we're taking our time with it because I want it to be absolutely fucking perfect. Um, once we get the warehouse finished, we're basically just waiting on um, city permits and inspections and it's a process. Once all that goes through, uh, then we will have a studio where even the sound quality is going to improve if it can. I mean, I'm going to do literally everything I possibly can to make this podcast better for you guys. Um, but one of those things is an intro. And one of the things that you can do to help me make this podcast better is leave a five-star rating review so I continue to climb up that top 50 chart. Uh, and yeah. So anyway, let's talk nutrition. First question from Frank. I had to take a long pause after that. That one made me laugh. I'm in a goofy-ass mood today. Um, it's, it's just funny because I always like read, like we get questions, you know, from people like, today we have one from A. Castella, Castellano 307. We had one last week for, for the love of shred underscore. Like you always got these like names, um, at least a full name. Like we have a question today from Natalie Gay Darzy. Uh, sorry if I butchered that, but from Facebook. But my point is, is it's usually some like elaborate name. This one just Frank didn't leave me anything else. Uh, no full name, nothing. But it's a good question, really good question. I am 54 years old, six foot tall, and 205 pounds. Would like to get down to 185 pounds. Most of that coming from my midsection. After listening to you for some time, I've split up my workouts to upper and lower on different days and added more sets. I was just doing a full body workout twice a week with only one set per exercise. I do cardio the day before and after the weight days, then rest a day and start over. I'm losing about one pound per week and eating about 1,800 calories. Here's the problem. I started off really well, but now the third set is a struggle, and I swear that I'm getting weaker each week. Not enough calories, overtraining. What do you think? Thanks for all the great information you were putting out there. It is really helping me understand. 
Absolutely, man. I'm glad you're you're understanding more. So there's a few things I see here. Number one, uh, doing a full body workout twice a week with one set per exercise. Um, unless like so that's like a very Dorian Yates style max effort program if you are doing it to that intensity, which I doubt you are because most people aren't. Dorian Yates was a freak of nature. Um, somebody I looked up to when I was like young and getting into this stuff um, for all the wrong reasons because I, I wasn't really aware of natural bodybuilding and natural training and, and dietary protocols and stuff like that. But the dude would do one true set, one working set. So I'm, you know, I'm sure he did a couple warmups. He would do one true working set and always take it to maximum failure, like the most intensity you could possibly do. He was doing more than two workouts a week. So that is an approach. Um, the problem with that is, is you're likely not going to hit enough volume. Um, and the volume that you are doing is such high intensity that your nervous system is just going to tap out. You're not going to be able to consistently adhere to that. You're, you're going to need deloads and recovery periods too frequently. And then you're likely not going to be able to recover, therefore adapt, and therefore see the results you want to see. Um, so I'm glad you switched your training. Uh, from my understanding, you started doing an upper lower on different days and added more sets. Exactly what I would recommend. So what I typically like to see in a guy your size, your age with your goal is a four day a week upper lower split. So you're going to do a upper day and a lower day, upper day, lower day. You're not doing those four days in a row. My favorite way to split these up is Monday, Tuesday, upper lower. Wednesday, take a rest day. Thursday, upper Friday, rest day, Saturday, lower, Sunday, rest day. So you're doing two days in a row, rest, one day, rest, one day, rest, and then back at it. Um, I like that because it splits your programming up pretty evenly. I like putting your most neurologically taxing days at the very beginning of the week because that is after more rest. So you had a full rest day before Monday, Tuesday, and prior to that full rest day, you had two sessions across four days. Um, that's helpful. So if you were to do, let's say Monday, Tuesday, back to back, but you did your, uh, lower intensity days. So the reason I say this is because I would put you on a conjugate method style programming, uh, very similar to a couple of the ones that we have inside the boom, boom elite membership site where you have two days that are a little bit lower rep, more max effort style. So you're doing, uh, heavier loads, lower reps, and then two days a week where you are doing higher reps, moderate loads. And for you, man, like, and this is, I think anybody, anybody over the age of, 40 who does not have the goals of being maximally strong or stepping on a powerlifting platform. And this even goes below 40, depending on the person. Like for example, for me, because I live a very busy lifestyle, I have a young daughter, um, I'm an entrepreneur and I just had surgery. This applies to me too. I'm 27 years old, but it absolutely applies to me. And in this scenario, what I would recommend is never going below six reps. So even on your max effort day, that compound lift, that heavy lift you're doing is a six rep set maybe five. All your accessory work is eight reps. So you're still doing heavier loads because you're doing only eight, but your repetition day, you're doing eights, tens, twelves, 15, sometimes even 20. So higher, higher reps throughout the whole session. Uh, but anyway, you have Monday, Tuesday as your max effort day. So you have an upper day and a lower day in the lower rep range, heavier weights. Uh, Wednesday, I would do a recovery-based Cardio session, if you have a sled, that is the most ideal. Just drag a sled for 20 minutes, just just weighted walking, pulling that thing. You're just marching with it. Um, Thursday, you're doing a hypertrophy base, so higher volume, higher rep, upper body work, some more pump stuff, dynamic effort style. Uh, and then Friday is going to be a conditioning day. So not so, quote unquote, recovery focused, but still not hard training. You're doing like 
if you're if you're able to sprint intervals or kettlebell swings or prowler sprints, assault bike, just a good amount of high intensity work with long rest periods, so you can really work your aerobic capacity, your anaerobic capacity, really, um, but actually true conditioning, controlled conditioning, not just ballistic training. Um, and then Friday, lower day, Saturday, you can kind of play it by ear and be intuitive with it. Do you do another low intensity cardio to promote recovery? Do you do a high intensity? Cause you know, you have the next day off. It's kind of based on your biofeedback. Um, so that's how I would go about your training. If you're not already, I just wanted to kind of dive into that. So you know exactly how I would program it. Um, you're losing about one problem, one pound per week and eating about 1800 calories. So you're in a pretty good deficit. I, I usually like to say like a, a good deficit for general population clients who want to lose weight that are male is anywhere between 10 to 12 times your body weight. So if you're eating 1800, you're just below that 10 mark. You're at 10 times your body weight if you're hitting your, your uh, uh, goal weight. And that's assuming you're consuming a good amount of protein, your, your, at least your body weight and protein. So you should be consuming 200 grams of protein. I would be probably adding in more diet breaks. Uh, you mentioned not enough calories. Maybe not. But then again, if you're losing a pound a week and you are progressing in the gym and you're not feeling super lethargic, I don't think there's too much of a negative. I see a lot of people being so afraid to create a caloric deficit and they're staying so far away from a caloric deficit that they never see progress and they wonder why. Well, sometimes you have to dip your calories pretty low, especially if you're not in a very taxing lifestyle. So for me, 90% of my day is sitting behind a computer. I'm recording podcasts. I'm writing training programs. I'm writing nutrition plans. I'm talking to clients. And then I walk. Like I'll go on a 10-minute walk in the morning, in the middle of the day, and then uh, after dinner with my daughter. That's like my thing. I have three walks a day and a training session. So I'm active, but I'm still living a sedentary lifestyle for the most part. So for me to expect to consume 12 to 14 times my body weight and calories and lose weight is unrealistic. My metabolism isn't supporting that. Um, and I think the majority of people actually aren't. So unless you're in CrossFit or doing something very, very high intensity, which bodybuilding style training really isn't, it's hard and it's high intensity while you're there, but it's not something so glycolytic that you are going to be burning carbs and calories for hours and hours and hours. And yes, there is an epoch effect, but I think people overestimate that. Um, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but I don't think like I think you're a little low on calories. I probably wouldn't dip any lower than that. Um, I think you're at the lower end right now, but I don't think you're too low where you need to be scared. Now, if you're getting to the third set and you are just struggling and you feel like you're getting weaker each week, which you should know, like literally, are you getting weaker each week because you should be able to track your weights and see what you're doing. Now, what I would say is a successful diet should allow you to maintain your performance in the gym for I would say about 90% of the timeline. And what I mean by that is you're going to have shitty sessions. You're going to have shitty weeks. There's going to be times and days where you go to the gym and you just are weaker. Maybe it's a diet. Maybe it's poor sleep. Whatever it may be, you're not going to be all there. However, when you look at the grand scheme of your timeline over the 12, 16, 20-week diet, most of your training should be maintainable for the most part. A lot of times during the beginning, you're still progressing in the gym. You still have strength gains. And then towards like the halfway point of your diet timeline and, and further on, you might get a little weaker, but you should be able to maintain most of your strength levels. Um, that being said, if you do notice that you're literally lifting less weight each week, aka you are getting weaker, I would say you're probably in too big of a deficit or you're not providing yourself with enough recovery. So that could come from more sleep. It could come from uh, more diet breaks, which is probably what I would recommend. I don't think uh, enough people 
play that game smartly enough. Um, so I would probably be a fan of keeping you at that 1800, letting you lose a pound a week, but every three to four weeks, giving you a solid three to four days where we bring your calories up to maintenance and let you chill there. So every few weeks, and, and this is adjustable, like I have clients where I do it every 10 days, I have clients every 14 days, clients every 21 days, every 17 days, it can be random. Sometimes it's once a month um, and it's a full week. It, it's so random and it really depends uh, on how the client's doing. I really, really base it off my coaching intuition um, and their biofeedback. How do their pictures look? How are their measurements coming along? What is their performance in gym? How are their stress levels? When I can see all those things, I can make a better judgment of what I think needs to happen. And then from there, I can uh, provide them with the diet break I feel is necessary. Um, so that's probably where I would go with you, man. I don't think you're overtraining by any means. Um, I think the biggest thing for you is like you're probably at a pretty big deficit, but it's working. And I wouldn't advise you to stop that. I would just advise you to take more frequent diet breaks, not single day refeeds where you're just taking a refeed day every week, but like literally taking full diet breaks that are at least two, but more like three to seven full days every anywhere between two to four weeks. Doing that's going to keep your physiological health a little bit better throughout the process. And I think that's going to help you maintain your strength gains better. Um, and, and this is something that like I have to say as well, that could be a really good tip for most people, but I could look at your macros. You give me your calories. I could look at your macros and be like, oh shit, no, we got to change your macros around. Like you could be getting not enough protein, not enough carbs. You could be on a very low carb diet and that's why your performance is going to shit. And I would flip that and go low fat, high carb, high protein, um, low fat as in the minimal effective. I'm not going to dip you down below what's healthy, unhealthy. But, uh, my point being is it could be macros as well. And I, I can't really see that, nor can I prescribe that through a podcast. Really? I'd have to work with you. Got to take a sip of my coffee. Mutza Vollmer has two questions. What's better, to do lower macros with two refeed days a week or to do the same macros all seven days if total calories end up being the same? It's a good question. I don't think either is better because I think it's all person dependent. So as you guys know, it depends is my middle name. Um, and I'm going to call the it depends card on this question. I think that it really, really depends on the adherence and lifestyle of an individual. I've worked with a lot of people that I have put on a 5-2 split where we're in a deficit for five days, refeeding for two days, and it works phenomenally. A um, couple things on that. Two days of refeeding has multiple benefits. Number one, it's the minimum amount of time at maintenance that is required in order to maintain your hormones. So maintain is different than like boost or increase or improve. And the reason I say that is because most studies don't show an increase or a rise in leptin, ghrelin, metabolism, thyroid, testosterone, any of these things. They basically show uh, a pause on the negative adaptation. So it's literally just enough time in order for our body to go, okay, we can stop uh, declining or downregulating these hormones for a little bit. So we hold on to them a little bit longer. So you're not necessarily stopping or increasing metabolic adaptation or improving metabolic adaptation. You're actually quite literally just stopping the negative, the downfall, the negative adaptation temporarily, which is a good thing because in the grand scheme of things, after a 12-week diet, that's less total time in a deficit. That's less total time down-regulating these hormones. So it's a good thing. Um, but I don't want people to think that it's, oh, two-day refeeds boost your hormones. They don't. Um, 72 hours has been shown 
uh, to possibly, potentially, there's some studies that show um, they're not, they're kind of inconclusive because it's only in certain scenarios, but they see a slight rise back up after 72 hours, which means that we need at least three days in order to see any type of positive increase or benefit to the hormones in the metabolic adaptation during a diet. Um, and that comes from three days or more. Um, usually we see an actual increase after seven full days, which is why if you're going to do diet breaks in in a perfect world, what I would recommend anybody to do uh, as a nutrition client is I'm going to say, hey, like the smartest approach we can take is to double the amount of time that you're on a diet. Now, I understand that there is an adherence factor there. It can be tough. And for a lot of people, it's not practical, to be honest with you. They don't uh, want to spend money for that long on a coach. They don't want to wait that long because they're impatient. Um, but if they do make that investment, both with their time and their money um, and their energy, you will have to diet twice as long, but half that time is spent diet breaking. So you would go two weeks on, one week off, three weeks on, one week off, um, or one week on, one week off, or two on, two off. Like I don't really like going diet breaks longer than a week if I don't have to. I think either one, one, or two, one, or three, one works best. But any of those scenarios, you're going to minimize and possibly have a slight increase in hormones every time you do that seven-day full diet break. Um, it does pause weight loss during those weeks, so it takes longer total time to get to your goal. However, because we have so many small increases along the way, we keep our baseline hormones so much healthier at the end of the diet. Now, the problem with this is, is yes, two-day refeeds pause the metabolic adaptation. However, a lot of people who do really well with two-day refeeds are doing well with it, not from a physiological perspective. And what I mean by that is I'm giving somebody two refeed days a week back-to-back -back on the weekend because it's more flexible. They can be more social. These people struggle with a diet because during the week, they are spot on. During the weekend, they go out. They have fun. Even if they don't drink, they eat out. They do their thing. They just generally have more calories. That's what screws them up on their diet. So the problem with this is, is two things. Number one, unless you're sober and you're not a drinker, I do think it's a positive benefit because you go out, even if let's say you have pancakes, no, it's not the healthiest thing, but it's a rise in calories. It's going to have that physiological effect. So a 5-2 approach would work really well. However, if you're not, uh, if you do drink and you go out and most of the time, at least one of those days, you're drinking some of your calories, you're not getting the physiological benefits of those refeeds, even though you're consuming more calories that day because most of those calories on at least one of those days is coming from alcohol. So we're not getting the physiological benefit. However, their weekly deficit is still being achieved because we're doing this 5-2. The only argument I would make is it's still being hit with a lot of alcohol. So you still got to manage it on the weekends. Um, so my whole point with this being is I think a 5-2 approach is better for anybody who is kind of a weekend warrior and just struggles to stay consistent on the weekends. I think a seven-day deficit is great for anybody who wants quicker results, likes a more structured and rigid approach, and doesn't want to stray off the path at all. They just want to go straight to the gate and just run, right? For those people who are like, hey, for the next nine weeks, I'm dieting, I'm focusing on this, I don't have anything planned, I don't care, I'm not a social person – Seven days a week in a deficit is going to be better. Um, in my experience, when you're in a deficit for more days in a row, you're more likely to see weight loss. Sometimes five days in a row just isn't enough for your body to kind of tap into fat loss. There's no science behind that, but some people's bodies are just stubborn and resilient, and they will hold off. Um, and, and sometimes it's not the deficit that needs to be bigger. It's the deficit that needs to be longer. So I see a lot of people like they do well with a 5-2, but instead of a 5-2, 
let's do a 10 to, right? Let's go 10 days and two days refeeding. Um, or at least seven days, right? Like, so I think it really depends. I don't think there's an answer. I'm sure you probably knew that there was an answer because you've asked questions before and you know that I say it depends a lot. Um, and that's how I would probably do it. But regardless, I'm a big fan of going longer in the deficit with more long-term diet breaks. So again, two to three weeks of dieting hard, one to two weeks diet break, back and forth. Second question, should I count collagen in my total protein for the day? I read somewhere that it wasn't a complete protein. No, you should not. I wouldn't. Um, it, it's a kind of a hard thing because you it, – it's, it's like – if you don't count it in your protein, um, then what do you count it for? Because it is still calories. Um, so there's a couple ways I would approach it. Either A, you purposely plan or prescribe your protein a little bit higher than normal. So let's say you weigh 180 pounds. You're consuming 185 to 190 grams of protein per day, and you count your collagen in that. So you count the fact that you're going to have collagen every day and you plug it into there. Um, the reality is, is collagen is not a complete protein. It's probably one of the worst proteins for building muscle. Um, it can be beneficial for injury repair. Uh, there's some studies that have favored that with like tendons, ligaments, uh, collagen tissue after surgery, stuff like that. That's why I consume a lot after surgery. Um, skin, hair, nails, things like that. Um, there's also a lot of very inconclusive studies. In fact, there's not that many studies, period, if we're looking at the grand scheme of things. Um, on collagen. So it's not something you can really bet your bottom dollar on. Um, but I would set your protein a little bit higher and factor it in because it is still calories. So you need to equate for it. The other way I would approach this is how I do it. I have collagen in my coffee every single day. Not really even for any benefit besides I like the way it tastes. It, it kind of makes my coffee creamy without me having like regular dairy um, that up, usually would upset my stomach if I have too much dairy. So I just prefer collagen in my coffee. I just like it. Um, I think there might be some potential skin, hair, nail benefits. I know it's not bad for me, so I'm like, cool, I'll have it. Um, and I just don't track it. But I have two scoops every single day with my first two cups of coffee. So one scoop, one coffee. Um, but because that factor never changed, it's a variable that literally never changes, I never track it because it's not going to change. Very rarely do I not have coffee at home. Like unless I'm out of town, I literally always have coffee. So it's one of those things that no, I don't track it. But the fact that it never changes, I could still make a caloric drop or a macro change or anything. And it would still be effective because it's a variable that will always be there no matter what. So that's the other way I would probably recommend doing it. All right, Jen Johnston. Nutrition guidelines and our resources for night shift workers. Do you count a day or 24-hour eating period of macros in the same time frame, midnight to midnight? Yes, I do. Um, I would actually suggest – so I actually don't have – we have a blog. I will link the blog in uh, the show notes. I always got to write these down as I'm uh, recording because I'll forget uh, to write them in the show notes. Um I will link some stuff in there in the show notes. There's some good work by uh, Dr. San, uh, Panasuchin on time-restricted feeding that I think would be helpful. And then we wrote a blog on it, um, Coach Caroline did. Really good blog from uh, kind of based on some people that we've worked with because we've worked with quite a few night shift workers, uh, from hospitals, stuff like that. Um, and typically what I recommend is, yes, I, I, I would focus on the same 24-hour window However, I would prioritize a 12-hour eating window um, 
Because if we look at like splitting the day in half, that implies that you're fasting for 12 hours. That's normal for sleep and or a body clock, which is going to help your circadian rhythm, your hormones, your metabolism, your thyroid, everything. Um, and I think it helps you regulate your meals. So if we look at what regulates our circadian rhythm, what regulates our body clock, it's sleep and it is meals. Most, the majority of our body clock is regulated by those two things, sleep and, and our food. And if we look at how our food affects it, more so than calories, it tends to be when you're feeding. Um, I shouldn't say more so because calories make a big difference on everything, but a big influence on your body clock being properly regulated is when you're feeding because you you feed when you're awake and when you're moving and when you're doing things. Um, so what I would suggest is picking times of day that you can repeatedly eat if you can. That's perfect world. Um, not you can't always do that, but if you can potentially always eat at the same time frames, I would do that um, as closely as you could because that's going to help your circadian rhythm as much as possible. In the case where your your shift work is just too crazy, where you literally can't do it, um, then I would just focus on calories and I would focus on midnight to midnight, which means like sometimes you'd have to work and you you wouldn't be eating for a while, and it sucks. But like let's say you're working overnight and you have a meal at nine p.m. and you know you have to work until six a.m. I probably wouldn't eat. I would fast through the work and then I would eat a meal right when you get off, go to sleep, wake up and try to repeat those meal patterns again. Um, if you skip one of those meals and it kind of throws off your meal uh, timing, just double up the next meal to make it bigger and that's fine. But I definitely would suggest trying to regulate a meal timing pretty specifically, um, trying to bank your sleep. So by the end of the week, you're still trying to catch up and get as much sleep as you possibly can. Um, and I would wear blue light blockers as much as possible. Um, throughout that period of time, even, even if you're at work sometimes, honestly, um, because, you know, it's a kind of give or take. It's like you wear blue light blockers there. It will help your melatonin production. You might be t more tired at work, but then the other part of it is that's a big regulator of hormones. So do you do it? Do you not do it? I want to say I brought this up with Greg Potters, who I did a sleep podcast with that I think airs in a couple weeks. So you guys will, it might air next week. I don't know when this is going out. So, um, but yeah, my, my best advice is check out uh, Time Restricted Feeding, research, check out the blog we wrote, try to stick to a meal timing schedule if you can, and then just make sure you hit your calories within a 24-hour window, and then bank your sleep. Ian Dickinson. And, and I, I want to say too, I want to finish up that question real quick with just saying like, there's not a whole lot you can do. Like the reality is, is like, I, I hear this answer all the time because I've heard this question asked on so many other people's podcasts too, and usually the answer is get a new job. And Obviously, that's not a very productive solution or answer to a question, so I didn't want to give you that answer because that doesn't do shit for you. But the reality is it's very hard to juggle. Like it's just one of those things where like becoming optimal in that situation is so unbelievably difficult. Um, but the closest thing you can do is, is manage all other stresses in your life as much as possible. And one of those ways is sleep. Uh, timing your training properly too. I wouldn't do training, hard training on the days that you have to work overnight. Um, and then your meal timing. Ian Dickinson, is there ever a regular place for processed carbs like bread and pasta in a healthy person's diet? Everyone's advice is against them, but I've yet to really hear a concrete reason why. Um, I think so. I think it just depends, man. Like if we look at like, for example, Dave's killer bread, like I could easily argue that there's tons of vitamins and minerals and good fiber inside of that bread. Like, is it a grain? Yeah. Is it processed? Yeah. But it's still 
still good. You know what I mean? And, and I think that that's totally fine. Um, oats, same exact thing. Good fiber, good vitamins, minerals. I eat oats every single fucking day. Is it processed? Yes. But I think there's absolutely a place. This is kind of where that 80 to eight, I, I think like there's a 90, 20 rule and then like a 70, 30 rule. So the 90, I think I said 90, 20, I meant 90, 10. The 90, 10 rule is basically like whole foods to process junk. Um, that's like flexible dieting. And what I mean by that is 90% of your food is whole. I would consider oats whole. I would consider bread, like Dave's killer bread whole. I would consider like good pastas whole. It's, it's man-made. Yes. It's processed. Yes. But it comes from good nutrients. It can be organic. It can be gluten-free. It can be blah, blah, blah. Like has vitamins and minerals and stuff like that. A Pop-Tart doesn't have any fucking vitamins and minerals. I don't care if Kellogg's fortified it with vitamin B12 or not. It's not happening. So that is the 10%. 10% of my diet, right? Like I eat oats every day. I do eat some processed stuff. But like the 10% for me is I have ketchup on my eggs every day. I have uh, like this sugar-free barbecue sauce. I think it's HG Hughes or G Hughes or something like that. It's fucking delicious. But it's got words that I can't pronounce in the ingredient list. Like probably not great for me, chemicals and shit, but that's my 10%, right? Like ketchup, that, glass of wine here and there, stuff like that, right? And even wine I could argue is somewhat healthy, but we're not going to. Uh, my point being is like the 90-10 rule is that. Like on the weekend, like we go out to a restaurant and I'll have whatever, right? It's probably not going to be good for me, um, but that's okay. That's in that 10%. The 70-30 rule I would say is that 70% of your diet is paleo, 30% is is just quote unquote good. So when I look at that, I think 70% of my diet is produce. It's fruits and vegetables. It's fish, steak, eggs, avocados, meat, things like that, right? Really, really whole food. Again, paleo from the earth. And then 30% of it is white rice, oats, stuff like that. Um, and I think that's okay. I think that's the approach. And that's where pasta and uh, good bread would fall in. I would say don't go get Wonder Bread and top a noodle, top ramen, top of noodles, cup of noodles, or top ramen. Um, you can tell how long it's been since I've had that shit. Um, that wouldn't fall into the 30%, but like Dave's Killer Bread, organic pasta, stuff like that would fall into that. Um, Pro Burke had a follow-up question in the group on that one. She said, does the quality of the processed carbs matter? I eat three ounces of organic rice pasta with a tablespoon of olive oil every day. It has only one ingredient, organic rice, so I don't even think about it as a processed food. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, you're totally fine. And, and as we know, it's a calorie equation anyway. Like most poor health markers and uh, bad diseases and stuff like that are linked to obesity and dangerous levels of visceral fat. So if you're under a calorie-controlled situation, I don't think it's an issue at all. And that falls into that 70-30 rule. 70% um, of your food is somewhat paleo, and then the other 30% is just good processed food. Um, I, think it's, I think it's funny that people think processed foods are, are bad for humans because they're not from the earth when our bodies are so, – I'm so excited for Dr. Gabrielle to come on the show. We already did the podcast for you guys to hear that episode because she destroys this one. And the reality is our bodies are garbage disposal. They're meant to, to digest these things and it's not going to harm us. Now, constantly eating candy or high fructose corn syrup and, and Pop-Tarts, things like that, I can't, I can't argue that. I can't. I don't think that's healthy. But 
organic pasta with minimal ingredients, organic bread, stuff like that is not bad for you. If it fits in your calories, you're totally fine. Natalie M. Gaydarzi, is it possible to gain weight in body fat percentage and working out four to five days a week lifting weights while not meeting the caloric budget? One day eating 100 to 150 calories over and another day 100, 150 calories under. Um, I'm a little confused by the question, but I think what you're asking is, is it possible to gain weight if some days you're in a surplus, some days you're not? So basically, this is like a situation of kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Like, let's say your caloric intake is supposed to be 2,000. Well, today I hit 2,150. Tomorrow, I'm going to hit 2,850. Or I'm sorry, 1,850. So basically, I added 150 calories today. Oops, I'm going to pull 150 tomorrow. Is it possible to gain weight in body fat percentage? I would say it's possible to gain weight temporarily because when you have more calories one day, your weight might spike up that. It's usually just from having more food in your stomach and from possible water retention. Uh, but I don't think your your total fat percentage is going to go up from that because if you do end up pulling calories back down the next day, you do this whole Rob Peter to pay Paul thing. By the end of the week, your weekly caloric intake is in check. Your weekly caloric balance, your energy balance is in check, and that's what's going to lead to success. That's why when I work with somebody, we often do multiple weigh-ins per week, at least three, but usually daily. Um, and at the end of the week, we see, and I, and I actually think this helps people remove the fear of the scale. Like I know that sounds crazy, and a lot of people are like, you have clients step on the scale every day. Does not fuck with their head? And it's like, well, no, because they see the fluctuations. People's minds, and this isn't always the case, there's no absolutes, but a lot of times people's minds get fucked with when they step on the scale because they haven't stepped on the scale in a while. They step on it and it's higher than they expected. Or they grind their ass off all week and then they try to weigh in on Saturday. Little do they know that whatever they put in their macros last night was a little bit off or they had a little bit extra sodium or they didn't get any sleep so their cortisol's up, they're stressed and retaining a little bit more fluids, whatever it may be. They step on the scale and they didn't lose any weight or they gained a pound and they're like, I've been busting my ass. Mind you, if they would have weighed in Monday through Friday, they would have seen a constant trend down and then just one day on Saturday it bumped up, right? Or they see majority of the week they're down, a couple days they're spiked up. But then they can link that to, oh, yeah, I didn't get much sleep that day. Or, yeah, I had a hard training session the, the night before, so there was probably some systemic inflammation. Or I had more salt that day. Whatever it may be, you can tie it back to that. So at the end of the week, we can see an average. And when we see an average, we can tell that, Overall, our weekly average weight has been dropping slowly. So back to your question, I don't think so if you – I don't think you have to worry about gaining weight if you do this whole Rob Peter to pay Paul thing. As long as you're weighing in daily, you see that your, your weekly trends are moving in the right direction and that you truly are doing this Rob Peter to pay Paul correctly, meaning – if you go over your calories a little bit one day, you are making sure that you pull them back the next one to two days. Therefore, your weekly caloric intake is actually in check. Um, yeah, that's – I mean that's I, – I, like I said, I don't 100% know if that's what you're asking. Um, but it sounds like it. You asked if it's it's possible to gain weight in that situation. And I think it is temporarily just from water retention stuff. But if your weekly caloric intake truly is in check, then then I think you're totally fine. Probably shouldn't be drinking coffee right now. It's 4 p.m. Had a long day, guys. Today is content day. Lots and lots of content all day. It's Wednesday. I literally just sit and create. It's my favorite day of the week. I just literally, I zone out, put my phone in the desk, 
put some good old 90s alternative rock in my headphones and I just jam out and write. Today, a little shout out to what I wrote. Let me see how many pages I wrote today. It was pretty crazy. I'm almost done, guys. You, you guys are going to hear it first. I posted a little sneak peek on my story the other day, uh, but we have a new book coming out and it is the, uh, what do we title it? The Auto-Regulated and Self-Individualized Hypertrophy Training Program. So far, I am in 13 pages. I, and I wrote 10 of those today. Twelve, uh, Maybe even 11 or 12 of those today. But like diving into my training philosophy, which I call the uh, hierarchy of aesthetics. Then I dive into exercise selection, execution, volume, intensity, frequency. Um, we go into the nervous system. I go into RPE and effort. I go into reps and reserve. I go to how to properly train those, intensification uh, techniques, periodization for aesthetics, autoregulation and biofeedback, using the program properly, pre-training mobility. Like there's so much information in this. It's not – it's the most education-driven program I've ever written and the reason I'm doing it this way is because – this sounds crazy. I'm, I'm basically selling myself out of anybody ever buying an ebook again, but I don't care. I'm, I'm super amped up about this. I had this idea and I was like, I have to create it. Um, I create things like this, not thinking about future products, <laughs> but it literally is something that you can tailor to yourself. So it's giving, I don't want to give too much away, but it's going to give you the options to select the best exercises for your body and your movements and your activation, your skill. And it's going to auto-regulate your volume, your effort. Like it's so dope. It auto-regulates your training split. It can be adapted to you, your stress levels. Like I can't stress enough, no pun intended, how sick this is going to be because it's not going to be a three to four week training program. It's, it's essentially like the last program you need ever, really. Now, granted, I think if you followed this program for a full year, you'd probably end up getting bored and want something new because we're humans. Um, but the point of this is because it's auto-regulated and it's self-individualized, you can keep running it over and over and over again. The exercises will keep adapting and changing and, and volume will change, progression will change. Like it, it's kind of crazy. I, I, I got really excited about this idea I had and I took all these notes and I reached out to my ebook guy and he was like, let's do it. And we've created it. And the cool thing about it is inside the book, I'm going to be teaching all of it. Like, why does this all matter? How do you train for the rest of your life? and continue to progress, and it's so dope. I'm so excited about it. You guys are going to be the first to see it. Um, it will we'll do a launch week, and it, it will be on sale for one week only, um, but I promise you this will be the best program I've ever released publicly in my entire life. Um, it's something that I will literally use myself probably because it's just so – and it's, it's similar to what I already do, but I'm very intuitive with my training. But this is something I'm going to jump into into my next gaining phase for sure because it's just so specific and it's so individualized. It's, it's dope. I'll do a whole podcast on it. But anyway, back to the questions. Um, so stay tuned to that, guys. September 9th, it is launching. That's on Monday in about three weeks, I think. James Ward, without testing blood sugar, how do you know when it's a good time to drop carbs and do an insulin reset? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say you probably don't know for sure. That is like kind of the number indication, right? Like, do you have low testosterone levels? Uh, I kind of feel like shit. Okay, well, if you don't have blood markers, you can't really be sure, right? It's the same thing. Um, however, what I would say is like if you're not getting good pumps in the gym, um, if you're gaining body fat uh, uncontrollably, 
Um, if you're, if you don't feel like you're digesting and processing carbs very well, um, if you feel bloated and lethargic after eating carbohydrates, uh, those are probably going to be your best bets. If you're not getting a pump, something's not regulating properly. Um, if you're, if you're feeling bloated or lethargic after carbs, something's not digesting or absorbing properly. Um, if you don't have good energy in the gym, probably something's not working properly. If you're gaining fat uncontrollably or you're not in a big surplus and you're gaining fat or you're struggling a lot to stay in lean, like those are all scenarios where you could potentially want to do a insulin reset. The problem with this that I have is that the first thing you need to check is your stress levels because even if you do test your blood sugar, right, you could test your blood sugar and see 105 and be like, oh shit, um, I'm, you know, pre-diabetic, if not damn near close to diabetic, I need to do an insulin reset. But you drop carbs and it doesn't change. Now you actually get more stress. I've seen this happen. So be, so my reasoning behind this is because cortisol can affect blood sugar levels negatively. So you could have high blood sugar levels and it not be related to your insulin sensitivity necessarily. It could be, but it's not linked to carbohydrates directly. It's linked to an overproduction of cortisol because you're too stressed out. So I've seen people who remove carbs to try to quote unquote reset insulin because they took used a blood sugar test and they saw that they had high levels. And then what happens? They get more stressed because they don't have carbs to blunt that cortisol response around training or in the morning. And now all of a sudden cortisol goes higher and more chronically throughout the day. And now blood sugar continues to stay elevated. And they didn't solve the problem yet. They removed all their carbs and they're just pissed now. They're cranky and hangry. Not a good result. So I always say to people like, hey, like if you test your blood sugar, if you're worried about insulin sensitivity, first and foremost, check your stress. Like if cortisol's through the roof, you you probably could fix it with just that. Um, that's going to improve insulin sensitivity. It's going to improve fat loss. It's going to improve your training, your pumps in the gym, recovery, everything. So I would look at that first. Um, and I just want to put that out there as a warning just because some people dive into that because it's a cool thing, right? Like we test our blood sugar. We, we see that we have high levels. We're going to do a keto phase and we're going to try to bring that back down to better process carbs, so on and so forth. But in many cases, it's just stress related. So if you can do it with eliminating stress first, I would suggest doing that because you don't want to remove carbs unless you absolutely have to. But there are times where people are pushing like a bulk or something like that. And they're totally stress-free. They just they get to a point where they've just pushed carbs too high and they we, you do a mini cut, you do a high fat mini cut, drop calories because calories are going to help that too. So it's not just like keto that you need to do, but drop carbs, drop calories, increase fats enough to keep your satiety up and spend a few weeks there as a mini cut to reset and then go back to it. Proberg also had another follow-up question on this one. She said, what are the symptoms of insulin resistance you can spot without testing blood sugar? Okay, so I basically just – same, same question. So I basically just went over that one too. Nikki Ross, what are your thoughts on going all in for hormonal health? What's your perspective? At what point is it necessary? The biggest example right now who comes to mind is Stephanie Buttermore. I don't know a whole lot about Stephanie's situation. I know that she is dating Jeff Nippard. Um, I really like Jeff Nippard's stuff. Uh, he actually helped me with photo shoot way back. Um, so really good guy, great coach. Um, I'm not sure he coaches anymore, uh, but I really enjoy his channel. I think his content is phenomenal, like really taking the science and, and describing it. In a, in a, I mean, obviously he has 1.3 million subscribers on YouTube now, so he's, he's doing a really good job at putting out that content. But... Um, I think at what point is it necessary? I think it's necessary when you absolutely know that that's the cause behind it. We actually just wrote an article, which I will link that one 
in the show notes as well. And it was kind of like, it's called Hormones 101. And it's really just a, the goal with that was Lisa wrote it. It's like 5,000 words, phenomenal article. I highly suggest you guys check it out. But the reason we wanted to write that was to kind of teach people what's going on with hormones, what to look for, and stop being afraid of them. Because I see a lot of people fear-mongering on social media, um, basically scaring people into thinking that their hormones are all screwed. Now, granted, I have clients that are in hormonally compromised positions where I do have to focus on reverse dieting and strictly focus on hormonal improvement. Um, But more often than not, I see people who think that's the issue, but it's not actually what's going on. And we can help them without going through all these crazy measurements. Now, I do think somebody like her could have potentially just been in deficit for too long. I mean, she's really lean. So I think for somebody like that who was either A, potentially in a deficit for too long, or B, just potentially low body fat for too long. I mean, she was lean. So I don't know if she was necessarily in a quote-unquote deficit, but if she got super lean, um, she must have a great metabolism in the first place because if no matter what, if you get yourself to a point where you're pretty lean and you have muscle mass, you have a good metabolism. She gets herself to that point. She reverse diets out, let's say. She has highly adaptive metabolism, so she handles it really well. But the physiological changes never occur, meaning she gets her calories up, she stays really lean, but physiologically, she's not improving. And the reason being is because she doesn't have a lot of body fat on her body. Body fat on your body is part of the reason why hormones are produced, and that's going to help you get out of a hormonally compromised position. So for somebody like her, my, my question would be, were her hormones in a compromised uh, place because she was just too lean? Um, so I, I think like there are situations where I go all in on that. I have uh, I have at least three, but probably about five clients I can think of off the top of my head that we're in that stage. We are all in. They, I have a CrossFitter. I have somebody who's more into bodybuilding. Like, in fact, they're all women, but they all just took things a little too far for too long. And because of that, they're paying the price hormonally. And so we're spending time focusing on health, focusing on lowering intensity, focusing on sleep, focusing on shit like blue light blockers and the quote unquote hacks, which I hate that word, but things like that, um, to get them to a good place. And we're bringing calories up and we're not worrying about being lean. So my thoughts on going all in, I I think that like I'm very 50, 50, I'm neutral about it. I think for some people it's absolutely necessary because for some people, they absolutely need it. They're never going to get to their ideal physique if they don't spend time doing that first. Um, so you got to go all in and you can't half-ass hormonal improvements. Um, and then the other part of me is like some people blame lack of fat loss on hormones, but really it's just lack of adherence. It's uh, a crummy lifestyle. It's not training hard enough in the gym. They're not actually in a deficit, so on and so forth. Um, so I'm very 50-50. I see both ends of the spectrum. I see a lot of fear-mongering, which I think is not a good case. Should you worry about hormones? Possibly. Should anybody fear or try to scare you into buying a product to fix your hormones? No. Like that's where I think it crosses the line. Um, but I'm very 50-50. I'm very neutral on the, the topic. I think both I've, – I've experienced too much in both avenues to really pick one or not. Like to pick going all in as in a thing, you know. Michael Williams is a ketogenic diet a fad? What is a trainer to do when a client insists on following a ketogenic lifestyle? So do I think the ketogenic diet is a fad? I don't think it's a fad. I think, I think the hype is fad. And by fad, I mean it's temporary. So if we look at what the definition of a fad is, I actually don't know off the top of my head, but my guess is that it's something that is temporarily um, prevalent in any type of space or industry. 
So yes, in, in a sense, it is a fad only from the standpoint of it is currently very popular and it's currently being marketed, hyped. And again, with the whole fear-mongering thing, people are trying to sell it so hard, which I think is stupid. I think the a true diet shouldn't be sold. It's a way of eating, right? Like it doesn't make sense. Like, I don't know. Anyway, I think that's I, I, that kind of frustrates me because there's keto water now. It's like, what the fuck? It's water. Like how How is that keto, right? There's keto like snacks, keto chips, keto cookies. There's so much keto shit. It just, it, it just drives me crazy. Um, so I, part of me does think it's a fad. The other part of me doesn't think it's a fad because it's actually a medically proven, uh, it's, it's a, a legit diet proven by the medical community. It's been around, I don't know how long, I don't know if it was like the 1930s or whatever, but, uh, for epilepsy and seizures long, long, long time ago. So it's a legit diet and it's been around for a long time. Therefore, I don't think it's a fad because, it came and it never went. Um, however, you asked, what does a trainer do when a client insists on following a ketogenic lifestyle? The reality is, is if it fits their lifestyle, let them do it. Like, I don't think we should stray anybody away. Like, I don't personally like intermittent fasting, but I have clients who do intermittent fasting. And if they insist on living that lifestyle because they enjoy it and it helps them adhere to a caloric deficit, I'm all in. I think it's great. Um, I just personally love <laughs> sounds funny. I personally love oatmeal and I love eating oatmeal early in the morning. So like for me, like I just wouldn't get rid of breakfast because that's how I can adhere to a diet. I like breakfast. I'm a breakfast guy. So I think it depends, right? And then same thing with I couldn't do a keto diet because I love carbs. Like I thrive on carbs. And I know that because I've tested low fat versus high fat, high carb versus low carb, things like that. Now I have clients who do better on a keto style diet or a cyclical keto or just a high fat diet in general. And even though I don't like it, why am I – who am I to tell them they can't do it? I'm here to guide them down the path in a direction that suits them. So I am going to tweak, coach, and implement this diet that they know they can follow to be most optimal. So if they want to follow keto, I'm going to design, design this keto diet to make sure that they feel the best, perform the best, and recover the best, and get the best results possible. Like I'm playing – with the cards you deal me. Um, so I think your job, man, is is to do two things. Number one, educate them on why it might not be advantageous to them if you truly don't think it is. Meaning, if they are a CrossFitter, if they're a bodybuilder, if there's somebody trying to put on muscle, if performance and strength is one of their top goals, I would probably have a conversation with them and be like, hey, like, I'm going to support you no matter what. I'm going to take you down whatever path you want to go down. However, I do want to let you know that keto might not be the most advantageous thing for your goal. Keto is mainly a diet built to help with autoimmune-related issues. It is built for disease prevention or more – not really disease prevention. Actually, the more studies that come out, it's not really here to prevent cancer or anything like that. It's more of a re rehabilitation. So if you already have a disease and you're trying to reverse out of it, keto might help you. Can it work for fat loss? Absolutely. Um, but it is not going to be the most adva advantageous diet for maintaining muscle, building muscle, or getting stronger and performing harder. So I would have that conversation if you think they fall in that category. Now, if it's somebody who does have an autoimmune-related issue, does just want fat loss, doesn't give a shit about performance or muscle, um, and maybe they just want to live as long as possible, then just support them, man. If they think they can adhere to it um, and it's a true keto diet, it's not just like a, like a fake keto diet where – they're keto a couple days a week or they just have more fats. They're still eating carbs. Like you got to make sure they're actually in ketosis, but just educate them, man. I think that's the best educate them and support them. I think that's the best thing you can do. Carmen Splitzer. Is there a hormonal benefit 
a lot of hormone talk today. Is there a hormonal benefit when cycling your carbs slash calories throughout the week, same overall calories, or is it just about the mental benefit? When would you implement it in a cut or also when reverse dieting or bulking? So there is no benefit to carb cycling unless you are, which I wouldn't even consider carb cycling. Carb cycling is typically when you have high days and low days. So that's typically when you have like high, low, high, low, high, low, or it's like high, low, moderate, high, low, moderate, high, and you kind of escalate it up. Or you're just doing high carbs on training days, low carbs on rest days, right? Really common, easy one. Um, there's no hormonal benefit to that because like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you need at least 48 hours to have any type of hormonal effect, period. So two full days of refeeding um, where you're positively affecting hormones by just stopping the negative adaptations. You need three days or more to see any type of rise in hormones to positively influence hormones to actually go back up, increase, versus just slowing down the negative processes. Um, So carb cycling is not really going to do that. There's also no fat loss benefit for the most part because if weekly caloric intake is the same, you're not going to see a big difference. Um, Now, what I would say is when I do implement it during a cut is A, just to change things up with somebody because sometimes it just helps to change things up. It really does. Like there's no science behind it, but I have – I have literally gone from not carb cycling at all with somebody to carb cycling and not changing the overall calories at all, and it positively benefits their fat loss, and I truly believe that the metabolism is just an adaptive thing, and every once in a while, you got to tweak things and change things up to get things moving. Um, The other part of it is it it possibly is a good way to increase metabolic flexibility, so having some days where you're low-carb, high-fat, having some days where you're high-carb, low-fat can help your body actually... Uh, get accustomed to using multiple fuel sources. So if you have days where you're really low carb, let's say your only carbs are coming from a serving or two of fruit and then the rest veggies and you have high fats, when you're walking around, when you're thinking, when you do low intensity cardio, when you do high intensity cardio, whatever you're doing that day, your body has to primarily use fat for fuel. And it's not like a hack or a trick into burning more fat, but over time, your body actually can learn to mobilize fat better if you stay consistent with it. So there possibly is a benefit to carb cycling to improve metabolic flexibility in order to long-term burn more body fat, um, just because you get more able to burn and use fat as fuel, mobilize fat as fuel, so stored fat. Um, I wouldn't really use it for bulking. Um, I personally think the best thing for bulking is a low to moderate, I don't want to say low, like a moderate fat. So basically like the amount of fat you need to physiologically be healthy, um, the amount of protein you need in order to build muscle. So let's say a gram per pound and then just drive your carbs up. I think that's the best way to bulk. Um, I, and you don't carb cycle that personally. Um, the only time you carb cycle that is if like you're really struggling to eat that much carbs because you just feel bloated. Then on your rest day, have a lower carb day just to kind of feel better. Um, reverse dieting, same thing. I don't see much advantageous to it. I think it just confuses everything. Uh, it's kind of like just throwing more information in there. Like let's, we're already reverse dieting and bring calories up consistently. So things are changing. Let's just focus on that versus having a ton of different days going on. Um, and then the last situation, I do like this with like powerlifters who are trying to lose weight. I found really good success with powerlifters who have to cut over time and stay strong. We have high carb days around training. We have low carb, high fat days on non-training. And those days are a bit of a deficit. So the higher fat, higher protein, lower carb, um, those are lower calorie days. So that's where we kind of have our quote unquote fat loss days. Um, but the high fat helps with satiety. And then the high carb days, feel like they're a surplus because you're eating way more food than normal, but it's still 
at maintenance or in a small deficit still. So it's never in a surplus. But when you go from eating low carbs, high fat to eating relatively high carbs, because there's that big contrast, that big transition, I can actually jump carbs up pretty high on those days and they feel like they're eating a ton. And I've seen really good success with that, especially because it fuels performance and recovery. Like if they're training ideally, let's say 3 or 4 p.m., they have carbs all day, train carbs at night, and then the next day they have no carbs because it's a low-intensity cardio day for just immobility for recovery, right? Totally fine. They're going to support training really well, and they have those other days as their fat loss days. I have found success with that um, in my power lifters uh, multiple times. She has another question. Most people recommend small deficits slash surpluses, et cetera, but when would you be aggressive and need to do a big jumps regarding macros up and down, cutting, reversing, dieting, gaining? Um, easy. So with cutting, I become more aggressive if I already know the history of this client has an adaptive metabolism, meaning I know this person it's just hard to get them to lose weight. Like their body is resilient. It's stubborn. Um, and this is most people, to be honest with you, most general people, I will actually like taking a more aggressive approach and just having more diet breaks and refeeds. I think there's more motivation when you see the scale dropping immediately. I think there's more motivation when you see things moving. Um, and I also think that a lot of people just need a pretty aggressive deficit in order to actually see success. Um, the times I don't like doing that is when they have any type of hormonal issue or metabolic issue, like I know they have some more uh, metabolic adaptation from past diets or their past diet was just too recent. If somebody comes to me and they're like, man, I've been trying everything. I keep going these diets. I'm probably not going to be aggressive. They need sustainability. They need a system that's going to be easy to follow and it's not going to wreck their body. Um, when we're gaining, I will do this if the person is just, again, too, too much of a highly adaptive metabolism. I have somebody in mind, Kyle, shout out to Kyle, we were like, hey, let's go with a lean gain approach. He wants to stay somewhat lean and just build muscle. And we were just adding calories slowly. And the dude would just adapt. Like he'd gain a pound, drop a pound, gain a pound, drop a pound, gain a pound, drop a pound. And we added like 200 carbs and we're just like, holy shit, dude, you're just adapting to everything I throw at you. So I was like, yo, I'm adding 80 grams of carbs. Like, boom. I don't think it was exactly 80. I think it was less than that. But my point is, is we took a big jump and that's what it took to really get him gaining. Um, now, he, I mean, we were just talking about this yesterday. He's a little quote unquote fluffy, but that's part of the process, man. Like he's an advanced lifter. Like we got to put on a little bit of body fat and he still looks lean. Like I can still, still see definition, but we add a little bit of body fat just so we can break through and actually build some solid muscle. And then we'll cut later. Um, so I do that with somebody when they're adapting too much to the uh, adjustments I give them in a perfect world, we'd go slow. So I would really only add anywhere between like honestly, like two to 5% calories, like literally like a very small bump up in calories from their maintenance via carbohydrates, and then just really focus on training to, to gain. Um, but for some people, that's just not enough. So there's, it's really 50-50. Some people need those aggressive jumps. Some people don't. And then with reverse, uh, reverse dieting, it's pretty easy. The more hormonally compromised you are, the faster I need to go. Uh, and that's just like the difference between a recovery versus a reverse diet. Um, 3DMJ has a lot of good information on uh, the recovery diet because they built it. They designed it. And it, it's more for people who are doing shows. When you get that lean and you're that hormonally compromised, you're that metabolically adapted, we need to jump your calories up pretty rapidly in order to stimulate some type of positive adaptation, get you out of that reverse you way quicker. And then we can be slow and progressive with it after your hormones and your biofeedback start to improve. Um, so the first jump might be huge, right? We might make a 25% calorie jump like right out the gate. And then it's like very, very tiny bumps up like a reverse diet. Um, whereas a reverse diet, we're going to do that with somebody. We're not so worried about their biofeedback and physiology because 
they're still pretty healthy. They don't feel like shit and they want to stay lean. Okay, I feel more comfortable because we didn't get shredded to the bone where you really have to worry about it um, or we didn't bring you down in calories so low that we have to worry about it. So it's really just it's person to person dependent. All right, last question for today. A Castellano 307. Towards the end of a dieting phase, I often experience hunger and cravings, which is normal from being in a deficit. And I understand leptin and ghrelin are big factors in that. Now, how come after increasing calories to my new maintenance and after a dieting phase, do I feel like my hunger and cravings actually got worse? How long a maintenance does it take for these cravings to over uh, to overeat, surpass, and these hormones to level out? Is there anything additional I can do to prevent these extreme cravings and hunger after my dieting phase? So there's two things I would say. Like Number one, I'd really need to see your weight. Um, are you actually maintaining weight or did you drop weight? Right? Are you dropping weight as you bring that up? Um, is that your true maintenance? Can you push that maintenance up higher? Um, like Some people are afraid to push their maintenance up, so they say they're at maintenance, and I'm like, I think you might be able to push it higher. And if you're feeling that way, you probably need to just eat more. Um, and you also got to ask, like, did you get too lean for your physiology? Like, did you just get too lean this time? So what you might want to do is add a little bit of calories, see if it helps. Um, you will feel all your biofeedback improve and you might not gain any weight and you know, like, oh shit, I just wasn't truly at maintenance yet. Or you might gain a pound, but you feel so much better and you're like, you know what? That pound is worth it. I needed that pound because again, hormones are attached to fat. Maybe you just are a little bit too lean for your personal physiology. Um, the other thing I would say is that you maybe took a reverse diet instead of a recovery diet approach. If you get super lean and you reverse diet too slow, you like five grams somebody to death. That's where you like literally add five grams carbs every week. It's like a very old school approach to reverse dieting. Um, if you do that, you're going too slow to see any significant changes again in your hormones or physiology, and that could be causing the cravings. Um, then I would ask too, like what other stresses are in your life? Like, have you deloaded your training? Are you getting enough sleep? Do you have any uh, emotional, mental work, any type of relationship stress, anything like that? Because those things can play a big role. Um, there's so many things that can cause cravings. So I would go down the checklist of what causes cravings first, non-calorically related. And then if you can say like confidently, like I'm on point with all those things, at that point, I would probably add some calories to see if that helps them go away, see if it helps your biofeedback because it probably is. Like you probably didn't get out of the deficit quick enough or you're just not quite at uh, maintenance yet. Um, and remember, like I know you said you understand leptin and ghrelin are big factors and a lot of people assume like, yeah, leptin and ghrelin matter, but leptin and ghrelin, like they should be up on that maintenance calories. Well, Leptin and ghrelin are literally attached to fat cells as well. So if you are too lean and you don't have enough fat in your body, you're also not going to produce the right levels of these hormones in order to manipulate your metabolism and your hunger. So there's a lot going on here. It's hard to say. I would literally – I would. I mean not to sell my own coaching but like what I would recommend is like this is why coaching helps. Like I would work with one of our coaches so we can – literally communicate this with you on a daily basis to figure out what's going on, how we can solve it, and how we can tweak your diet to make sure that you try not to gain any weight if possible and fix this issue. Um, how long does it take for these cravings to overeat to surpass and these hormones to loving out? I, it does, I don't know. It depends. Like Usually I say 1 to 1.5 times as much time at maintenance compared to a deficit to see that result, but it's different person to person. It really depends on your history, your muscle mass, how much calories you're taking in. Um, so it's hard. If that doesn't help you enough, literally DM me, uh, shoot me a message on Instagram, uh, shoot me an email, Cody at boomboomformance.com. I'd love to help you. I'd also love to know where your macros are at and where they were at so I can get a little more specific. But um, that's the best I can do on this podcast, honestly.
Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.